0: All right, we are in a series on hospitality, biblical hospitality, uh, as distinguished from entertaining. Um, There's two very different things. Uh, Entertaining, the focus is mainly on some kind of social event, and the focus is on kind of how great and awesome the event is, you know, how good the food is, how great the decorations are, and so on. Uh hospitality is a very different thing. The focus is not on uh, impressing people, it's on loving people and welcoming people and and focusing on on their needs so up to this point, we have focused mainly on on the responsibility we have if if we're a believer in Jesus, the responsibility we have for hospitality and the reason we focused on that is because Uh, In our crazy, busy culture, hospitality is an easy thing to overlook. It's an easy thing to neglect, and we can kind of treat it as if it's not that big of a deal. You know, it's a nice, optional thing. If you have time for it, great. If you don't, oh well, uh, no big deal. The fact is, though, um, hospitality is a big deal according to God's word. Uh, it, it is part of, it's actually part of the job description for every believer in Jesus Christ. So whether you uh, are a church leader or a member or tender, if, whether you're um, younger, older, man, woman, whether you live in a nice big up-to-date home or in a crummy little apartment with yucky carpet, none of that matters. None of that matters. According to Scripture, hospitality is something that every believer in Jesus is to pursue, to go after. And we saw this last time. Jesus went so far as to say that on the coming day of judgment, one of the evidences that our profession of faith in him is genuine is whether or not we have practiced hospitality. We have welcomed people into our homes. So, hospitality is a big responsibility. So, we've focused on that. Now, today, I want to shine a little different light on hospitality, and I want us to see it not merely as a big responsibility, but as a powerful opportunity. Biblical hospitality. So, welcoming both the stranger and our fellow followers of Jesus into our homes with Christ-like kindness and generosity, that has potential to make a big difference in people's lives. And I think the more convinced we become of that, that, that hospitality has power to do good in people's lives. And the more we believe that God can actually use you, me, you know, yeah, even if our home is small, even if, you know, we feel like we're not that good of a cook or we're too busy to pull off anything elaborate, the more convinced we become that God can use even our feeblest efforts at hospitality to make a difference in people's lives for good, I think the more encouraged, the more enthusiastic uh, we will be to, to put out that kind of effort. Because let's face it, nobody likes to work really hard at something that makes no difference. No, nobody does that. you know. And so I know for some of you, this hospitality thing, the, the thought of having people you don't really know in your home, I mean, that feels like, a, feels like hard work. And nobody wants to do hard work if it feels pointless. You know, that's why some of you really don't like your jobs, because it feels like a lot of pointless work, like, like, like the myth of Sisyphus. Do you know that story? In Greek mythology, this guy named Sisyphus was condemned eternally to roll a gigantic boulder up a mountainside, only to have it, at the, when it got close to the top, to roll back down to the bottom, and he had to do it again and again. And again, forever. Just pointless. A lot of, lot of effort, no payoff. For me, that's how I feel about pulling weeds. In. <laughs> it's a lot of work, no payoff. They just grow back. It's pointless. Okay, but here's the thing. Hospitality is never that. It's never that. In the first place, it doesn't need to be that much work. We, we talked about that already. You know, a take a big pizza on a card table works, okay? But far more importantly, it's never pointless to offer hospitality in reliance upon Jesus, trusting in him, extending his kindness, his generosity. It's never pointless, and the payoff can be enormous, and that's what I want to show you this morning. I want to answer this question. Why is hospitality a powerful opportunity? And if you have uh, the notes in your folder, uh, if you want to follow along and fill in the blanks, I encourage you to do that. Why is hospitality a powerful opportunity? I'm going to give you two reasons from Scripture on why hospitality is so powerful and can make such a big difference in people's lives. First, because God designed eating and eating is a key component in hospitality, God designed eating to accomplish much more than simply feeding our bodies. There's much more to eating than nutrition. To put it simply, eating is big in the Bible. It's really big. Uh, Scripture is absolutely full of meals and feasts and banquets and people eating together and usually eating has it has relational significance and it even has spiritual significance okay think about it think about the very beginning god creates humanity where does he put them where does he put the first man and woman in a garden full of what full of trees bearing fruit and he talks to them and says you know look and so here is all all these trees bearing all this luscious fruit it's a beautiful garden he says eat whatever you want, just enjoy it, be satisfied, and then eating becomes a spiritual issue. Because instead of receiving, instead of enjoying God's gracious provision for them, our first parents rebelled by eating the one thing that wasn't good for them. And food became a test of whether or not they would trust God to provide them what was good, or they decided, or they would decide they have to figure out what's good for themselves. And that all started. The food was the issue. Um, then, okay, I'm just going to cover a few uh, highlights throughout Scripture on food. Think of the story of, of God rescuing the Israelites from egypt Uh, so the god chooses a man named abraham and his descendants wind up enslaved down in egypt when god amazingly rescues those people brings them out of egypt he institutes a meal for them to celebrate annually to remind them of what he had done for them we call it passover and so this annual feast to celebrate how god had redeemed his people In addition, in his law, he gave them two other yearly feasts, one at the beginning of the harvest season, which is called the Feast of Weeks, otherwise known as Pentecost, and then another celebration called the Feast of Tabernacles at the end of of harvest time. And then in addition to that, you have, as part of the regular offerings that the people of Israel would bring and offer on the altar, Part of those were called fellowship offerings or peace offerings, and those were meant to be meals shared together in communities, families, and so on. So you've got a fair amount of the Bible is taken up with describing these feasts and these offerings. And then you have all these other celebrations you read about, and wedding banquets, and new moon festivals where people are getting together and eating. Then you get to the New Testament, And you see all kinds of eating in the life of Jesus and his followers. In fact, you know what one of the biggest complaints about Jesus was from his enemies? He spends way too much time eating and drinking with the wrong people. They said this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. That really bugged them. Because, see, eating is an act of welcoming. It's an act of hospitality. And they didn't think Jesus should be hospitable to people who were far from God. They said, look at him. A glutton and a drunkard. A friend of tax collectors and sinners. Isn't it glorious? Isn't it glorious that Jesus eats with sinners? It's our only hope. It's our only hope. And then consider that his very first miracle was turning water into wine at a wedding banquet. And consider that when he described heaven to us, he described it as a wedding banquet. And then consider the invitation he gives in Revelation 3.20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. And then when Jesus wanted to give us a way of remembering the most important thing of all, the gospel, the truth that he died on a cross in our place to rescue us from our sins and to give us eternal life, what did he do? He took two ordinary parts of a meal, bread and wine, and he made them symbols for us to take together to remember him. He gave us a symbolic meal to eat. And so the impression you get as you read through Scripture is that eating together is an important part of life the way God means for it to be lived. Uh, A life of community, a life of celebration, a life of worship, a life of hospitality. And I see at least three purposes, three biblical purposes for eating together, usually, that go beyond simply satisfying our body's needs for nutrition. Okay, three purposes. The first is to honor God as our provider and as our redeemer. When we eat together, it's an opportunity to honor God as our provider and redeemer. And so these Old Testament feasts, certain sacrificial offerings, the Lord's Supper, the biblical instructions we have on giving thanks at meals, all of these things are meant to remind us that God is the one who provides for our needs, and he is the one who redeems us from sin and death. And this is huge because God is good. We just sang that. He is good and he is generous and he is worthy of our worship. And sharing meals together is a terrific opportunity to remember that, to call that to mind. Look at 1 Timothy 4 3. Uh, This is talking, Paul's talking here about people who teach false doctrine. And he says they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. So you have this opportunity to honor God as your provider. Everything we had, Jesus said, you know, and in his Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Every time we have daily bread, that's from God. Honor him as our provider and our redeemer. Second purpose for eating together is to build community, joyful community. It's hard to be grouchy when you sit down and eat together, it really is. It's a way of building community together. So the Old Testament feasts, the offerings, the symbolic meal of the Lord's Supper, the many examples we see in Scripture of eating together, these are community experiences. You really don't see people sitting you know sitting down eating alone. It's a together thing. It's a community thing. It's a relational thing. There is something there is something about eating together that helps build a relationship. And this is borne out by research. Research shows that families who eat at least one meal together regularly tend to be stronger, happier, and healthier than families that don't. God built that into us. He designed for eating together to be, for us to live in community and for us to express that community uh, and the joy of that community in eating together. So, The Bible has a lot to say about this actually. Take a look at uh, Deuteronomy 14.23. I'm just going to read you a couple examples. So this is in God's law that he gave to the Israelites. Okay, So Deuteronomy 14. Eat the tithe. I love any verse that starts with eat. That's really good. The tithe. That means the 10th The tenth of your grain, new wine and oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as a dwelling for his name. That is, the temple that that would be built, so that you may learn to revere or fear the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant, and you have been blessed by the Lord and cannot carry your tithe. In other words, this picture of abundance, a tenth of it is just too big to carry you, uh, because the place the Lord your God will choose to put his name is so far away. Then exchange your tithe for silver. Take the silver with you. Go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver or buy whatever you like. Cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, anything you wish. Then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Deuteronomy 16. Celebrate the feast of tabernacles for seven days after you've gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your winepress so this is the end of end of the harvest here be joyful at the feast you your sons and daughters your men servants and maidservants and the levites the aliens the fatherless and the widows so those who maybe don't have much or they're 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 alone bring them for 7 days celebrate the feast to the lord your god at the place your Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all your harvest and in all the work of your hands and your joy will be complete. Community, eating together, experiencing joy. It's a biblical purpose for eating. One more. One more purpose for eating, together especially, to remind us where ultimate joy and satisfaction are really found. John 6.35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What's Jesus doing? Why does he describe himself this way? Well, he's using physical hunger and thirst to point us to our deepest hunger and thirst, our hunger and thirst for God Himself. God has built into us an appetite, a thirst for joy, for meaning, for, for the satisfaction, and He. He made us that way, and that satisfaction is ultimately only fulfilled in relationship with Him. We try to satisfy it with other things. We do. We try to find ultimate meaning and contentment and satisfaction in in so many other things. The Bible calls that idolatry, because it can only truly be satisfied in God Himself, in a relationship with Him through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus describes Himself as the bread of life, giving the water of life and satisfying our deepest thirst. You know, we, we, in Jesus, we get tastes of that satisfaction now. We get tastes of it as we trust Him, as, as we obey Him, as we gather in community, as we are filled with His Spirit. We get tastes of that satisfaction, but we're still looking forward to the time when that satisfaction will be complete and that, that glorious future fulfillment guess how the bible describes it Luke 13:29 and people will come from east and west from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of god it's a feast Revelation 19.9, the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who were invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Sharing meals together is powerful because God made it that way. He designed it to be that way. And so when we practice hospitality and we eat together, it accomplishes a whole lot more than just filling empty stomachs. It's an opportunity To honor our Creator, it's an opportunity to uh, build community and experience joy, and it's, it's an opportunity to remind us where ultimate joy and satisfaction are found. So it's powerful. That's one reason. That's not even the biggest reason. That's powerful. That's a powerful reason, but that's not the biggest reason. Here's the biggest reason that hospitality is powerful because hospitality extends the warm welcome God has given us in Jesus. Hospitality extends the warm welcome God has given us in Jesus. Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is describing what, is, what was true for his readers before they knew Jesus compared to what's true for them now that they do know Jesus? He's drawing this, con, this contrast. What, what was true of you before Christ and what is true of you now that you do know Christ? And the difference is stunning especially for the people he's writing to because they weren't jewish they had not had the old testament scriptures they didn't have god's promises they were they were not part of god's people they didn't have the temple and the sacrifices so they were completely disconnected from god and his people but when they heard the good news about jesus and believed in him everything changed Okay, look how he describes it, Ephesians 2.12. Remember that at that time, before Jesus, you were separate from Christ, from Messiah. You were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope and without God in the world. Let that sink in without hope, without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ, through his death. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of of God's household look at the contrast without Christ excluded you're not citizens you're foreigners you're not part of the covenants you have no claim whatsoever on God's promises you are without hope you are without God you are far 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 away from him but in Christ the exact opposite is true you who were far away have been brought near. You were who were excluded are now included. You, are now, you who were foreigners and aliens, you're now fellow citizens. You're part of God's people, God's community, and members of God's own household. Look at it. It's amazing. Think about this. To go from strangers... That is being as far away from God as possible to go from that to being brought inside and seated at God's table as his sons and daughters. It is breathtaking. How did this happen? How could this happen? Think about it. How could guilty, defiant rebels against God? People shaking their fist in God's face, basically. How could God's enemies, okay? Enemies He loved, but enemies nonetheless. That's how the Bible describes us outside of Jesus. How could God's enemies become. Not only God's friends, but God's family. How did this happen? Who made this happen? Well, it's stated indirectly in verse 13. You who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ through his death. That is, through his death to take upon himself God's justice that we deserved. But it's stated directly back in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2. Look at it. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. Who did it? God did it. God did this. He did it through Jesus. We didn't do it. We couldn't do it. We were dead. What do dead people do? Nothing. We were dead. We were strangers. We were outsiders. But look, in Jesus, God reached out to us. He reached out and he brought us in and seated us at his table from strangers to family. It's incredible. Folks, that's the gospel. That's our message. That's it. It's what God did for us in Christ. It's not what we did. It's not what we can do. Christianity, all misunderstanding to the contrary, Christianity is not about you making yourself good enough to get into God's house. You can't do it. Christianity is about Jesus going outside God's house, finding you, and bringing you inside, clothing you in his righteousness, and seating you at God's table. That's our message. That's it. Now the question is, how do we get people to to get that? How do we help people hear that? How do we even get them to listen to that? Especially today, with all of the misunderstanding and suspicion toward Christians in the Bible... How can we give people a taste of the warm, gracious, generous welcome of God in the gospel so that they might want to sit at the table too? How are we going to do that? I was just at a conference last week, <laughs> and I attended a workshop On evangelism. Now, if you're not familiar with that word, evangelism simply means evangelism is sharing the good news, the evangel, the good news about Jesus with people who don't know him yet. That's evangelism. So I went to this workshop, and at this workshop, I was given an article by a guy named David Mathis entitled, The Key to Evangelism for the 21st Century. That's the century we're living in, if you're keeping up. Okay, That's now. The key to evangelism. Now. You know what he said the key is? Take a wild guess. Hospitality. hospitality. <laughs> Folks, it's so weird. Everywhere I go, God keeps putting hospitality right in my face. Everywhere I go. It's like he's trying to tell me something. It's like he's trying to tell all of us, something, because I think he's telling me so I can tell you. Listen to this. There are a couple quotes. Increasingly, the most strategic turf on which to engage unbelievers with the good news of Jesus may be the turf of our own homes. When people won't gather for stadium crusades or stop long enough on the sidewalk to hear your gospel spiel, what will you do? Where will you interact with them about the things that matter most? Answer, invite them to dinner. Christians love the stranger because we've been loved by the Father when we were strangers. Listen to this. Our love for outsiders will run deep as it flows from remembering that we were outsiders loved by a lavishly hospitable God. True, biblical, generous hospitality is powerful. It's a warm welcome. It's an invitation to taste what it's like to be part of God's family. That's why it's a huge opportunity. That's why it's powerful. Now, are we going to do it perfectly? <laughs> no. But see, that's not really a problem. That's not really a problem if we will simply rely on Jesus and love people like He does. Depend on Him. To love Him with, with, with His kind of love, love them with His kind of love. It's a powerful thing. Larry Crabb, in his book on connecting, tells about a friend of his who grew up in a very angry family. The family members taking their cue from the father were always sniping, griping, arguing with one another. Any minor accident at the table was met by a withering blast of mockery or scolding. Down the street from where he lived was a big old house with a huge front porch. In that house lived a happy family. Laughter, singing, lively conversation were always spilling from that house. When this young man was about 10, he took to excusing himself from the dinner table as soon as he could. He would run down the street, hide under the big porch, and just listen to the happy laughing, loving talk of the family. Imagine, Larry Crabb said to his friend, imagine one day the father of that family discovers that you're sitting under his porch. He sends his son to invite you in, to come sit at the table with them, to feast with them. Imagine you accidentally spill your water. The father roars with mirth. Bring him more water, the father said. And a dry shirt. I want him to enjoy this meal. That's what God has done. That's what God is doing. That's what God wants to do through us to extend the invitation to come to his table. Our challenge, everyone host one. If you didn't get one of these, there are more out in the lobby. Pick one up. challenge is if you consider Philida basically to be your church family, then invite someone you don't really know into your home for a meal or dessert and just practice hospitality. It's a powerful thing. Let's pray together. Father, I, I just wonder if there's anyone here today who has not yet responded to your invitation. Someone here who, who needs to be brought in to your table. And Lord Jesus, you, have, you seek and save the lost. And I pray today if there's anybody here who has yet to respond to the good news. That getting into your house is not a matter of us cleaning ourselves up and making ourselves good enough because we just can't do it. We're dead. May they they respond to the invitation of Jesus who brings us in, who clothes us in his righteousness alone, that we can be worthy to sit at the table and enjoy, enjoy the feast with you. May today be the day for them. And Lord, will you help us grow in hospitality. Help us overcome whatever fears or reluctance or busyness or whatever keeps us from doing it. Make us a hospitable people so that the gospel can spread and you can bring more and more people into your feast through us, Lord. We long to see that. And we pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.